0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Young people have the right to sue the U.S. government for failing to protect them from the future ravages of climate change, a federal judge in Oregon says.
1: If it goes to trial, it will be the trial of the century. It'll outdo the Scopes trial because you're going to have all kinds of climate scientists saying how grave the threat is, how little time we have to address it, and that would be a very interesting spectacle, frankly.
0: But legal scholars say it's a long shot to get to trial. Also checking in on the Great Green Wall, an ambitious plan to keep the Sahara Desert in check as the earth warms. Good Great Green Wall is not only about trees. The Great Green Wall is about development.
2: It's about sustainable, climate-smart development at all
0: levels. That and more this week on Living on Earth.
3: Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live.
0: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. A federal judge in Oregon has found that 21 young people have the right to sue the federal government for failing to properly protect future generations from the dangers of climate change. In making this landmark decision, Magistrate Judge Thomas Coffin in part took his cue from a lower court in the Netherlands that found the Dutch government must act on climate change because of its existential threat to its citizens. The case now goes to U.S. District Judge Ann Aiken, who will determine if and when there would be a trial. We turn now to Pat Parento, law professor at Vermont Law School, to explain this case. Welcome back to Living on Earth, Pat.
1: Thanks, Steve. Good to be with you.
0: So, I'm looking at this order from the judge in this case, all 24 pages of it. I've never seen anything like this. So how surprised were you?
1: I was very surprised. This is a series of lawsuits that our Children's Trust has filed across the country, some in federal courts, some in state courts, and in the past, the children, who are the named plaintiffs in the case, have won some minor procedural victories, but this one is more significant. This is the magistrate judge in Oregon whose decision then has to be referred to the actual federal judge in Oregon, and it's Judge Aiken, and she will have to actually decide whether to accept the recommendation of the magistrate judge, but Magistrate Judge Coffin has done something no other judge has been willing to do, which is to recognize that the youthful plaintiffs have a potential constitutional claim that the United States government is falling down in its duty to protect the younger generation from the threats of climate change going forward.
0: Let's tease apart some of the legalese here. Now, when you say constitutional claim, what does that mean in plain language?
1: They're claiming a due process right based in the Ninth Amendment. This is the same amendment that has given rise to the right to privacy, to marriage equality, to a variety of individual rights, not spelled out in the Constitution, but contained within what's called the penumbra, of the Ninth Amendment. So that's what this judge is relying on. He's relying on case law from the Supreme Court that recognizes there are certain unwritten rights in the Constitution that come to light, if you will, as judges evaluate threats to American citizens. And in this case, the judge is saying, because the young population of the country will suffer the worst effects of climate change, They need to have their government respond by, of course, reducing the carbon pollution that's causing climate change now, because they won't have the ability to do that in the
0: future. Let's talk about the elements of Judge Coffin's decision here. First, he says that the kids have have standing, and really a special standing, because they're young folks. Can you explain that, please?
1: The youth are saying they're harmed in ways that are different than, let's say, the older population of America— which won't live long enough to see the worst consequences. So that's what makes this both a fascinating case and a really difficult case for the courts to deal with. The plaintiffs here, the the children are saying, we're a special class when it comes to climate change because the only way for us to avoid the effects we're going to feel is if efforts are stepped up now to reduce carbon pollution.
0: What are the plaintiffs seeking to have the federal government do in this case?
1: They've asked for a very broad range of remedies. They've asked specifically that the government cancel contracts to export gas from an LNG, a liquefied natural gas terminal, in Oregon. That's one of the most specific things they've asked for. But they've also asked that the government do an accounting for the greenhouse gas emissions that are occurring. And what is the government doing? to reduce those emissions over what period of time. And they're actually asking that the court order the government to reduce the loading of carbon in the atmosphere down to the 350 parts per million level that's been recommended by several scientists, including James Hansen, who's named as a guardian in this case for the children. So they're asking for an extraordinary relief. Never before ordered by a court telling the government to begin reducing carbon emissions and literally bring them down to a point where there's no longer at least a serious threat from climate change.
0: And how is the government supposed to do this, according to the plaintiffs?
1: Well, they don't spell that out. They're basically asking for a plan. And the question, of course, is who would provide that plan? The president, the Congress, those are all questions They're problematic questions, frankly. I think the courts are going to have a hard time ordering the United States government to take the steps that the plaintiffs are seeking. And it may be that the real value of a case like this is to elevate this issue in the court of public opinion, certainly with an election coming up, and try to get the elected politicians to respond to this. They're seeking a court order, but I have my doubts that a court is going to order the kind of relief they're asking for.
0: And what's the major reason that you think that this will fail, ultimately?
1: In the courts, I think the separation of powers between the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch is a real barrier to a case like this. It's not a traditional function for our courts to be ordering this kind of broad-scale economic energy policy. It's really economy-wide. And it's also the case that even if the United States, of course, were to do everything it could to reduce its carbon pollution, unless the other major emitters in the world do likewise, it won't accomplish the purpose. That's another reason why I think courts are going to be reluctant to be imposing duties on the executive and legislative branches of government where this is a global problem that requires a global solution.
0: What about the question of a constitutional right to be free from CO2 emissions that's in this case?
1: Well, you know, there have been courts that have recognized the right of bodily integrity, which means that you have a right to be free of contaminants or threats to your health that would emanate from activities that were either permitted by the government or perhaps not permitted and should be permitted. And it's in that vein, I think, that this judge is referring to the threats of climate change as being not only a threat to the bodily integrity of these young plaintiffs, but even more fundamentally, that this is threatening the very viability of ecosystems to provide food and shelter and so forth for citizens. In that sense, it's at the outer edges, certainly, of constitutional theory, but the idea that American citizens should be protected From an existential threat like climate change is not really that far-fetched. It is, after all, the fundamental duty of government to protect the citizens from existential threats. And that's exactly what climate change represents.
0: So what happens here going forward, do you think? What will happen next?
1: Well, I think the Judge Aiken has a big decision to make as to whether to accept the recommendation of the magistrate judge, or whether to hold further hearings and argument, or maybe accept a part of what Magistrate Coffin has said and not all of it. So that's the next step. Assuming that Judge Aiken accepts those recommendations, then the next step will be will the government file a motion for summary judgment in which they can argue? You no longer should accept what the plaintiffs are saying as true. We're going to introduce affidavits to counter what the plaintiffs are saying. For example, they're going to say the government is taking lots of steps to address climate change. It's not true that we're just sitting on our hands. Certainly not true of the president. So we'll have another round of argument, I think. And maybe the case will get resolved on summary judgment. And maybe not. If it goes to trial, it will be the trial of the century. It'll outdo the Scopes trial because you're going to have all kinds of climate scientists coming in saying how grave the threat is, how little time we have to address it. And that would be a very interesting spectacle, frankly.
0: Pat is a professor at Vermont Law School. Thanks for joining us today.
1: You're welcome, Steve.
0: Some stories fit to print don't make it onto the front page, and those are the ones that Peter Dykstra searches out beyond the headlines. Peter's with Environmental Health News, at ehn.org and dailyclimate.org, and joins us from Conyers, Georgia. Hello, Peter. Well, Hi, Steve. I've got some good news again this week. Uh, Hey, that's two weeks in a row for you. Uh, You feeling okay?
4: I'm feeling fine, and uh, I've got a survey from the World Wildlife Fund. Several Asian governments and conservation groups, and together they report that tiger populations are on the rise in Asia after a century's worth of decline.
0: Now that is some good news, but tigers are hardly out of the woods, or should I say, out of the forest of the night.
4: No, oh, not at all. The count is 3,890 tigers, up from about 3,200 six years ago. But consider that in 1900, it was 100,000 wild tigers in Asia. And here's a number that really shocked me. There are far more captive tigers alive today than wild ones. At least 5,000 alone in the U.S., in zoos, circuses, wildlife ranches, and private menageries.
0: Yeah, that is kind of surprising. But what do you think of the reasons for the increase in the wild?
4: Well, there's better wildlife protection, a slowing of habitat loss, and a commitment by Asian nations, including Russia, China, and India, to try and double wild tiger populations. There's another recent Google Earth-based study that's measured both the loss and the protection of tiger habitat, identifying key habitat areas, because even if we want the tigers out of the woods, we don't want them out of the forests.
0: Unless they're in zoos. Hey, what's next?
4: Well, here's the tale of two cities and their respective dealings with lead contamination. Fifteen years ago, Madison, Wisconsin, launched an ambitious project to eliminate lead drinking water pipes from the city. It cost just under $20 to remove lead from 5,600 properties, with the owners footing about 20% of the bill. That sounds relatively cheap. Yeah, but the estimate for doing the same thing in Wisconsin's biggest city, Milwaukee, is at least a half a billion dollars to swap out 70,000 lead water lines. But on to another lead story from another city. Okay. As in many big cities, Philadelphia's school system is facing enormous challenges over budgets and the infrastructure of aging schools. As early as 1993, the city knew its schools might have a lead problem. And while it took a few years and some pressure from health officials, by 1999, Philadelphia schools started to get the lead out. They removed some lead pipes, dismantled some water fountains, and painted Do Not Drink signs over bathroom sinks.
0: So the problems are all solved in Philly?
4: No, but let's call it mixed results. Things may be better, but this is hardly a shining success. The Philadelphia School Board knew, but didn't tell anyone about the lead issues for six years at first. And when they did, one report says EPA testers were blocked from entering schools to do their jobs and find out how bad the problems are. Those do not drink signs are still up in many schools, and when the water fountains were removed, some were never replaced, leaving kids with few places to get a drink of water at school.
0: And that also shows just how hard to fix those problems can be, particularly for governments and school systems that are a bit short on cash. Hey, what do you have for us from the History Vaults this week?
4: Well, let's take you back to April 1799 in New York City. A group of citizens headed by a future vice president got together to create a financial firm and launch an ambitious project, a centralized water system for the growing city. It was called the Manhattan Company, and it was the origin of not only one of the largest drinking water systems in the world, but the financial side evolved into today's giant J.P. Morgan Chase.
0: Hmm. The New York water system and J.P. Morgan Chase, two things that are too big to fail. Who was the vice president?
4: The one and only Aaron Burr. The big financial competitor for Burr's Manhattan Company was the Bank of New York, founded by Alexander Hamilton, who had been George Washington's treasury secretary. The Bank of New York also eventually got swallowed up by J.P. Morgan Chase. Of course, Burr and Hamilton didn't like each other very much. Five years later, at a spot not far from the modern-day Jersey end of the Lincoln Tunnel, Burr killed Hamilton in a duel. Hamilton today is the subject of a Broadway musical and a model for the $10 bill. Burr finished out his term, but was a pariah, best known today for being tied with Vice President Cheney as having shot the most people while in office.
0: And I thought modern day politics was a blood sport. Peter Dykstra with Environmental Health News. at ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. Thanks, Peter. We'll talk to you the next time.
4: Okay, Steve. Thanks.
0: Talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at our website, loe.org. If you love what we do on Living on Earth, please support us. Even $5 would help. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. As global warming advances, there are profound effects on our planet with heat waves, melting ice sheets, sea level rise, and changes in rainfall and storm patterns. And now a new study from NASA published in Science Advances points to an unexpected result of all that ice in Greenland and Antarctica melting and running off into the oceans. It's moving the axis of rotation of the entire planet. This wobbling was first noticed by John Lee Chen of the University of Texas at Austin. And to try to understand this better, we spoke with the co-author on the new study, Eric Ivans of the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory, in his backyard in Pasadena. Welcome to the program. Thank you. I have to say I was surprised by the opening statement in your paper. You say the Earth's spin axis has been wandering since the year 2000. How, how can the axis, which is just so fundamental to our planet, wander?
5: Actually, we know that it's been wandering for maybe about the last 5 million years at least, ever since the ice sheets started to build up in northern Canada and in Scandinavia periodically in periods of about 100,000 years. And as the ice sheets disappeared, they left kind of a depression that was sitting there. And that's a mass deficit with respect to the average Earth and it causes the pole to want to wander in the direction of that little hole that's left there. So we do know that we have been recording the drift in that direction since about 1899 or so. But starting in about 1999 or to about 2001, we started to see the Earth start to move in a new direction. And that new direction really could only be explained by Greenland ice mass loss.
0: Describe for me exactly what you mean by the axis is moving.
5: Well, let's say that you have a toy top and you spin that top. When you start to spin the top, since it's very symmetrical, it will tend to nicely form just a single axis of rotation. But if you were to take a tiny piece of chewing gum and stick it on there, you would find out that the spin axis would slightly tip over. That's because the body is no longer symmetric. It has an off-axis piece of mass on it, and it's causing the moments of inertia to change. And this is what causes this strange polar motion. Just to give you another analogy, let's say that you were a baseball pitcher, and you were frustrated that too many of your hitters were being able to figure out what your pitches were doing. Well, you would use this old technique called foreign substance, either pine tar or a little bit of your own spit.
0: This is not legal. This is not legal, a spitball, doctor.
5: All the all the Hall of Famers <laughs> are spitball pitchers. <laughs> now, what they're doing is they're changing the moments of inertia slightly. So it changes the entire dynamical character of the pitch as it approaches the batter.
0: Makes it wobble and harder to hit.
5: Well, it, it slightly changes the trajectory because the spin will change. And as the spin changes, of course, it tends to flutter around a little bit more in the eyes of the battery.
0: So you folks are positing that human-driven climate change plays a role in this wobble of the Earth axis. But I understand initially that wasn't your hypothesis. It wasn't what you were looking for. What led you in this direction?
5: Well, we were looking to build a software capability to connect calculations of ice sheet change so that we can project ice loss or gain for a period of about 200 years and try to predict what global warming will do to sea level rise. To improve that situation, we needed to include the Earth's dynamics and the gravitational effects that the ice changes would have on global seas. Then, as a way of being able to do a reality check, we looked both at the work that Jianli Chen had done on Greenland, and we also looked at the actual raw data that was coming from the International Rotation Service. We found it was a pretty close match, especially when we included the details of Antarctica. And we also decided that it would be interesting to use the GRACE mission data that determines how masses are changing on the surface of the Earth to include land hydrology. And once we included land hydrology, we found a nearly perfect match to the position of
0: the Earth's spin pole. And who's John Ling Chen? John
5: Ling Chen is a researcher at the University of Texas at Austin. He's also an expert at hydrology and uh, and Grace. And he's the first person that really published a very nice paper explaining what the new drift direction was and that the Greenland Ice Foss was dominating at this new direction.
0: Wow. By the way, what is Grace? What's the Grace satellite?
5: Grace satellite is a pair of satellites that follow one another and track one another. And they do such a a good job of tracking one another with microwaves that they can tell when they either separate or they get closer to one another. And when they get closer to one another and then separate again, they're going over a mass anomaly. And they're so sensitive that if there is a change in water underneath them, they record that and they map that very, very well.
0: Wow, this is so interesting. What do you think are the practical effects of the movement of the Earth's axis?
5: Uh, there are really none because it is so small. We're suspecting that these changes are occurring at a meter, meter and a half at the most per year. If you start to get up to about 100 kilometers, then you're changing the amount of solar radiation that's coming into some parts of the Earth. So that can only occur and be of significance when we're thousands and thousands of times larger in terms of our scale.
0: So... This is a tremendous wake-up call, I guess, for our civilization that anthropogenic human-related climate disruption is actually changing how the Earth is rotating.
5: Yeah, I guess you could say that. I think one of the things that John like Chen mentioned was it's just another strange thing that the climate does. It doesn't have a feedback that's necessarily important for us, but it's just one of those things you can list on a list of oh my God, climate change really does that one? Well, this is yet one of those.
0: Eric Ivins is a senior research scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. Thanks so much for taking the time with us, Eric.
5: Okay, thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure talking to you.
0: The loss of sea ice in the high north is also changing the economic life of the planet, with new shipping lanes, chances for oil exploration, and tourism. This fall, Crystal Cruises will run a 1,000-passenger cruise ship on what they're calling the Northwest Passage Expedition through the Arctic Ocean. Joining us to discuss the trip and the prospects for Arctic tourism more generally is Michael Byers, the Canada Research Chair in Global Politics and International Law at the University of British Columbia. Welcome to Living on Earth.
6: It's good to be here.
0: Thank you. Hey, tell us a little bit, please, about this cruise. What kind of ship are we talking about, and what's the route?
6: Well, we're talking about the world's most luxurious cruise ship. The Crystal Serenity is going to sail from Anchorage, Alaska, to New York City, around the northern coast of North America, through the fabled Northwest Passage, through the 19,000 islands that constitute Canada's high Arctic. The uh, voyage will take a month. And it will cost each passenger between $25,000 U.S. Dollars all the way up to $120,000 for one of the top suites. It's going to be quite a trip.
0: Yeah. And how unprecedented is this? I mean, how many ships have done this route before?
6: Well... No cruise ship this size has done the route before. There have, for a number of years, been smaller so-called expedition cruise ships that carry 100 or 150 passengers. There have been a, a few large cargo ships that have made the voyage. And, of course, Coast Guard icebreakers from Canada and the U.S. have done so as well increasingly so-called adventurers in private yachts, upwards of 25 or 30 a year. But no cruise ship of this size. These 1,000 passengers have fairly large cabins. They're being cared for by 650 crew members. They're even bringing a support ship along that has its own helicopter. So it's a, it's a major enterprise. And I was, in fact, invited to go on board the Crystal Serenity as a lecturer and after considerable thought two months ago, turned the trip down.
0: Why? Why did you say no? Sounds like a great trip.
6: Well, a couple of reasons. The most significant being that I've become increasingly concerned about climate change. And to be entirely open, I've done the trip before on Canadian Coast Guard icebreakers and on one occasion on one of these smaller expedition cruise ships. And I thought about whether I needed to be part of this trip First of all, because the ship has a pretty large carbon footprint. So it's contributing to climate change by going to the Arctic. And also the fact that this trip is a form of so-called extinction tourism. The only reason that the passengers can go to the Arctic is because the Arctic is on the edge of a precipice. The sea ice is melting, the ecosystem is being overturned. It's a little bit like going to see an endangered species on the savanna of Africa or in the Galapagos Islands because you don't think it will be there in five or 10 years. And I, I, again, found that a bit perverse and decided I could not personally go. Now, I'm not criticizing those people who choose to go. Again, I've been, I've already seen it. I don't need convincing about the reality of climate change.
0: Also wondering about the impact of such a tour ship. I mean, you go to a place like Nome, Alaska, and now you know how big Nome is. It's not exactly, I mean, Snowball, maybe you could throw from one end of downtown to the other almost. How can Nome handle a thousand people disembarking there?
6: Well, that's a question for the residents of Nome, Alaska, and also for the three small Aboriginal communities in Canada's high Arctic where the ship will stop. And certainly the cultural impact could be severe. The environmental impact on the local wildlife could be significant. But that's a decision that the residents need to make. There's a more problematic issue in terms of the impact on the marine ecosystem as this large ship passes through. For instance, there are many Whales in the Arctic, bowhead whales, beluga whales, narwhal. And these whales are highly sensitive to noise because they communicate using sound. And if you have large ships passing through, this can disrupt the whales while they're calving, while they're mating. And so that's a concern. There's also a potential risk of an oil spill. And I don't want to overstate it with regards to the crystal serenity because the crystal serenity is very well managed. But any large ship will have hundreds of thousands of gallons of. Of fuel oil on board. And oil in cold water degrades very slowly. So if you remember the Exxon Valdez and you transfer that situation to the high Arctic, you have a situation that's even worse.
0: Well, I'm also wondering about basic safety for those thousand passengers. If something goes wrong, I you know, Crystal Cruises, as you say, is very well run, but it's a human invention, so things can go wrong. How the heck do you get a thousand people out of the high Arctic if there's a problem.
6: Well, you might not be able to do so. And even though the ship is passing through the Arctic during the late summer, I have sailed the same waters in the summertime in 20-foot waves, in gale-force winds. So there are risks, and search and rescue capacities in the Arctic are very stretched. Canada faces its search and rescue helicopters in southern Canada, on the west coast and on the east coast. It can take them up to two days to get to the northwest passage. So we're talking about very poor search and rescue coverage and real dangers from shallow, uncharted waters, from the increased existence of icebergs in these waters. This is actually one of the ironies of climate change. Although the the sea ice that forms on the surface of the water in winter, although that is diminishing, the number of icebergs is actually increasing as climate change melts the surface of land-based glaciers, and that meltwater lubricates the motion of the glaciers into the sea. And small chunks of icebergs called growlers are very, very hard to see because they're very dense. They float low in the water, and they can punch a hole in the hull of a cruise ship. And In fact, a decade ago, a small expedition cruise ship sank in Antarctica after striking a growler. And if the Crystal Serenity were to have that kind of accident happen in the Canadian Arctic, well, quite frankly, I would not want to be on board.
0: You are perhaps alluding to the first passage of a major, large, super large ship more than a century ago. Sounds like this could end up like the Titanic.
6: Well, I don't want to exaggerate the risk. Again, Crystal Cruises is a a very good company. Passengers pay an awful lot of money to have the highest standards of safety. So this ship will probably be okay. My biggest concern about cruise ship safety actually involves the other ships that will follow in subsequent years. Crystal is going to open this door and Holland America and Disney and Costa are all going to come through in the future because it's a place that people want to visit, that they want to see. And all of your listeners will remember the Costa Concordia which crashed onto the rocks along the coast of Italy a few years ago. The Canadian Arctic, the north coast of Alaska, is infinitely more dangerous than the coast of Italy.
0: So you say that we're likely to, after this voyage, we'll see many, many more. How should this industry be regulated?
6: The first thing is that people should be making informed choices as to where they go on vacation. I personally think that if we're concerned about climate change, perhaps we should fly less. Perhaps we should stay closer to home. In terms of what governments could do is to make sure that the strictest safety standards apply to these voyages. So to give you just one simple example, ships that are sailing within the coastal waters of the United States and Canada on the Pacific or the Atlantic coasts are required to use low sulfur fuel to reduce the amount of air pollution. That's not the case in the American or Canadian Arctic. And this is a real problem because that high sulfur fuel produces a lot more particulates, which when they land on ice or snow, darken the surface, absorb more solar energy and accelerate the melting process. Now, coming back to the Crystal Serenity, again, Crystal is a good company. They are voluntarily using low sulfur fuel for this voyage. But the ships that follow might not do so. And the U.S. and Canadian governments are not requiring that they do so.
0: Michael, by the way, you wrote a book called Who Owns the Arctic? So tell me, who controls this territory and and what laws would apply to companies who are trying to do business in the high Arctic?
6: Well, Canada and the United States dispute the legal status of the Northwest Passage. The United States says that, yes, it's Canadian waters, but there's almost an easement through Canadian waters that enables foreign ships to enter with very little restriction. Canada objects to that, says, no, this is a situation of internal waters where the full force of Canadian law applies. One of the things that the Voyage of the Crystal Serenity should be saying to politicians in Washington and Ottawa is that the Northwest Passage is now opening We can't afford to have a diplomatic dispute between these two countries. I've been making this pitch for a long time, and governments don't listen to me. But the whole point is, the Arctic is opening, climate change is real, these waters are becoming busy, and governments need to get their act together to protect the environment while we still can.
0: Michael Byers is the Canada Research Chair in Global Politics and International Law at the University of British Columbia. Thanks so much for taking the time.
6: It's been a great pleasure. Thank you.
0: At my house, we know it's spring when ducks swoop down to our pond for a quick bite to eat on their way north and Phoebes show up to build nests under the eaves of the house. And as Michael Stein explains in this bird note, for some species, nest building can involve ingenious repurposing, the bird version of reduce,
7: reuse, and recycle. A spider's web is an intricate piece of precision engineering, and the spider's silk it's constructed with is amazing. Made from large proteins, it's sticky, stretchy, and tough. So it's no surprise that many small birds make a point of collecting strands of spider silk to use in nest construction. Birds like hummingbirds, kinglets, gnatcatchers, and some vireos. Golden-crowned kinglets, among the smallest of songbirds, build a tiny, square nest They often use strands of spider silk to suspend the structure from adjoining twigs, like a tiny hammock. When a female, ruby-throated hummingbird is building her nest, she collects the spider silk she needs by sticking it all over her beak and breast. When she reaches the nest site, she'll press and stretch the silk onto the other materials, such as lichen and moss, creating a tough, tiny cup. Spider silk not only acts as a glue the other bits together, but it's flexible enough to accommodate the growing bodies of nestlings, and it's resilient enough to withstand all the bustle of raising those hungry babies. Where we might reach for duct tape, these birds turn to spider silk. I'm Michael Stein. Duct tape?
0: Who'd to thunk it? For more, flap on over to our website where you'll find not spiders but photos. Coming up, a front line in the fight against climate change, the Great Green Wall of Africa. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned.
3: Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from Wonder Capital, an online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar projects across the U.S. More information and account creation at wondercapital.com. That's wonder with a U. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. To mark Earth Month, yes, at Living on Earth, we believe our only planet deserves more than just a day. We're celebrating by catching up on the progress of some stories we've covered in the past. Today we head to Africa through a story Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom reported on back in 2012. The ambitious plan to build a great green wall of trees at least nine miles wide to stretch more than 4,000 miles across the continent. The Great Green Wall is designed to encourage sustainable development and keep the Sahara Desert from advancing further south as the planet heats up. And when it is finished, it will cross 11 countries from Senegal and Mauritania in the west to Eritrea, Ethiopia, and Djibouti in the east. Bobby reported from a village in the arid Sahel in Senegal where trees were already being planted to hold back the
8: desert. The pole are the dominant ethnic group in the Senegalese Sahel. Extremely tall and lean, they wear long flowing robes of emerald green and sapphire blue. They look like jewels against the rust-colored sand and brown dry grass. Traditionally nomadic, the pole are now helping tend to the trees and gardens. One day a week, women in the area volunteer to help care for gardens full of carrots, cabbages, tomatoes, even watermelon. On this day, a group of women, including Gunsier Yahati, is using the side of their flip flops to mound the sandy soil around potato plants.
3: I like working here. I like working with my friends. We laugh and play while we work. But what's really great is that we have more diverse vegetables. We eat the vegetables and can sell them in the market as well. The closest market is about 30 miles
8: away, and before the gardens came along, it was a day's trek in a horse-drawn cart to get fresh vegetables. Most of the gardens are watered using drip irrigation. A hose with holes delivers just the right amount of water to each plant to minimize evaporation loss. But some plants are watered by hand. The women dip large plastic cans into a basin filled with water from a nearby well. Nime Samso pours her jug of water over some carrots.
2: When people came from Dakar and showed us that they could plant vegetables in their center, we saw that it was a way to help women in the
8: community. So we knew the Great Green Wall Project was important for us. It's exactly that kind of community support that the government is hoping to garner. While women here mostly see benefits of the project in their gardens, the men have a different perspective. In the early morning, white humped-backed cows with giant horns gather around the water troughs. The pole depend on their large herds of cows and goats for subsistence, and livestock need a lot of water. French colonizers built water wells every 20 miles in this region. In an area that gets as little as six inches of rain each year, water is life. Scientists say the trees of the Great Green Wall will improve rainfall and recharge the water table. That pleases Alfaca, a local herdsman.
9: Planting trees is good for us. Those trees can bring water, and water is our future. Water can solve our problems. We are praying for this project to continue.
8: Roughly 40% of Africa is affected by desertification, where non-desert land turns to desert. The United Nations says two-thirds of Africa's arable land could be lost by 2025 if the desertification trend continues. Everyone involved in the Great Green Wall agrees that the end goal is to help rural communities. But opinions vary on how the project will do that. African leaders envision the Great Green Wall as a literal wall of trees to keep back the desert. That's what was proposed by the president of Nigeria, Olusegun Obasanjo, when he came up with the idea in 2005. But scientists and development agencies see it more as a metaphorical wall, a mosaic of different projects to alleviate poverty and improve degraded lands.
6: Sustainable management of natural resources and with the aim of reducing poverty. This is really our goal for this program.
8: Jean-Marc Sinasseme is a program officer with a global environment facility, one of the funders of the Great Green Wall.
6: We do not finance a tree planting initiative. It's more related to agriculture, rural development, food security, and sustainable land management than planting trees.
0: That's Jean-Marc Sinasseme of the Global Environment Facility that helps fund the Great Green Wall in Bobby Bascom's report from 2012. Living on Earth's Helen Palmer has been checking out what's happened since then.
10: For those in charge of making this ambitious dream a reality, it's not just about planting trees to hold back the desert. At the Paris Climate Talks, I met up with Elvis Paul Tangham, the African Union Commissioner for the Sahara and Sahel Great Green Wall Initiative.
2: Good Green Wall... It's not only about trees, the Great Green Wall is about development, it's about sustainable climate smart development at all levels.
10: Development at all levels means sustainable land management to provide jobs and cash to keep people in their communities and able to thrive in a harsh climate. Tangham says it's a matter of life or death for millions, particularly young men.
2: It's about value. The issue with migration, which is a very fundamental, because there's a nexus between migration, land degradation, poverty. Every young person wants to be valued. In the African context, every young person, especially a young man, has the responsibility to take care of their family.
10: Tangham says idle young men, who've seen crops and animals die and have no work, face terrible choices. They might join rebel groups or terrorist groups like Boko Haram, or join the exodus of desperate migrants trying to cross the Mediterranean on rickety boats to find work in Europe. Although the idea of a wall of trees is a decade old, it remains more vision than reality. Yet Tangam says a lot has been achieved in terms of cooperation.
2: The first biggest achievement of the Great Green Wall is the fact that people... those regions have accepted to work together for a common goal. The second achievement is that each of those countries developed national action plans. That is the biggest achievement because it's now they own it. It's about ownership and that has been the failure of development aid because people were never identified with it, but this time they identified this is our thing.
10: But there has also been success on the ground, according to Tangam. About 15% of the actual wall of trees is already planted.
2: Senegal has reclaimed more than 4 million hectares of land along the Great Green Wall. They have planted more than 27,000 hectares of indigenous trees that don't need watering. All animals that had disappeared from those regions are reappearing. Animals like antelopes. We are talking about hares. We are talking about beds that, for the past fifty years, nobody saw.
10: The United Nations commissioned a virtual reality film to show the progress so far. It features the Fulani people at a village called Coily Alpha. Already, our well is filling up, and now my mother doesn't have to walk for hours to get water. There is more work for everyone. And the market is busy again. And Tangham says it's not only Senegal. There's progress in Mauritania, in Chad, Niger, Ethiopia and Nigeria where they've developed market gardens and grow fodder to feed animals in the dry season giving the young population work.
2: You see that many young people who probably would have been joining the Boko Haram, they are now part of either the firefighting brigades, they are now part of the Great Green Wall Brigade, and they are in their communities because they have a source of income and they are putting value to their lives.
10: And according to Tangham, another hopeful sign is the money to pay for this huge project. Last December, the UN Climate Meeting brought firm pledges of additional funding for the Great Green Wall.
2: We have generally four billion dollars of pledges, which is a lot of money, and we are going to get them. The French government said we are going to increase our investment in climate resilience and programs by 2020 by one billion euros. The president of the World Bank said they're going to give 1.9 billion dollars for Great Green World and other related programs.
10: Still, the UN says that a hundred million Africans are threatened by growing desertification as the climate changes and the worst drought in 30 years affects parts of the continent. That makes any project such as this that Africans claim as their own and believe in, both more vital and more likely to succeed. My grandfather says that all of this here is part of a great green wall that will stretch across Africa. He says it is going to be a wonder of the world. Though, as Elvis Paul Tangham and all the stakeholders agree, to realize this wonder of the world will take at least a generation. For Living on Earth, I'm Helen Palmer.
0: There's a savage drought in parts of southern Africa, and that's putting extreme stress on wildlife. But our resident explorer, writer Mark Seth Lender, discovered that at a waterhole in Zimbabwe, even when water is scarce, animals have learned
9: to keep the peace. The crocodiles are lying in a circle at 12, at 5, at 9 o'clock. They surround the only waterhole with water in it, an immobile, unbreachable line. Just off center, a hippo lounges half-embedded in the mud. He humps up out of the water like a boulder. It is late afternoon, The sky is white. The heat is beyond description. Out of the wavy distance, a small herd of elephants appears. They already know there is water here, but as the smell of it reaches them, they break into a silent, dumbling run. At the bottom of the slope, they hold back. They have seen the disturbing clockwork, and there is a baby with them, only the one. He looks out from between the legs of the others, sheltered by mothers and aunts. They stand like tree trunks, waiting, despite their thirst, which by now is all they can think about except for the crocs. The matriarch breaks off from the herd. She walks up to five o'clock and stops, straightens her neck, lifts her chin, looks at the crocodile as if over a pair of pince-nez, a look intended as a warning which the crocodile ignores. Boom. A foot that is half a meter in diameter lands three minutes on the gauge from his face. The matriarch steps back. She tilts her head and looks at him sideways. A layer as fine as chalk settles on his nose and jaw and the hooded sockets of his immovable eyes. This time the distance is measured in a clock tick and the crocodile's big bony skull bounces, raising its own drab puff of clay. The matriarch looks down. And the crocodile rises just enough to let him move and slips into the water slowly, very slowly. His tail, sculling side to side, pushes him away from the banks towards the center, preferring the considerable risk of hippo to the imminent threat of elephant. The herd comes closer. The matriarch continues in her deliberate precession. Step by step, she clears out nine, then noon, and the elephants unfurl their trunks and drink their 40 gallons each of what passes for water in this fetid season of the year in southern Africa. One of the females stands with the baby, and he also drinks and bathes as well as he can, and they spray the muddy stuff over themselves and him, and then go back the way they came under the red dust sun that is hot and unforgiving, as it will be for at least another month of hardship all around. Light quickly fades, The land begins to cool. The crocodiles retake the positions they had before, marking their ancient place and time. Again, the danger is them.
0: Writer Mark Seth Lender, there are some of his photographs of lumbering elephants at our website, loe.org. Next time on Living on Earth... To mark Earth Day, countries will sign the Paris Climate Agreement, and its chief executive, Christiana Figueres, says there's no time left to waste.
8: We're five minutes to 12, so the speed and scale of implementation is going to have to be pretty aggressive.
0: Assessing the climate agreement and more, next time on Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Jenny Doring, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Peter Boucher, Adelaide Chen, Jamie Kaiser, Jennifer Marquis, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jeff Wade, Jake Rigo, and Noel Flatt. Thanks this week to Donald Young Safaris. Alison Liererstein composed our themes, and you can find us anytime at LOE.org. And like us, please, at our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth, and we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
3: Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, Developing the Next Generation of Environmental Leaders